You are now listening to the E-Watchman Podcast with your host, Robert King. Well, 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 hello, everyone. Thank you for lending me your ear for these uh, few minutes. This is the 64th installment of the Watchman's Post podcast. I try to do an episode every month, and I'm barely sneaking this one in on the wire. It's the 31st of October. Halloween in the year 2015. I think it's been about seven weeks since the September program, and it may seem as if things are just going along, uh, but quite a bit has changed in the geopolitical scene in the world. As you know, the United States has been trying to overturn the chessboard in in the Middle East and Northern Africa for some time. And uh, about a month ago, uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russians said, you know, we've had enough of this. I listened to his speech at the United Nations, and that's exactly what, what he said. This situation is no longer tolerable where the United States is, you know, sponsoring these various terrorist groups. It's crazy, you know, I mean, like, what was it, just a year ago, Al-Qaeda was the world's worst menace. And just a few weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal listed Al-Qaeda as one of the moderate rebel groups in Syria that the United States was training and equipping. So it's a world full of lies. And of course, when there's oil involved, well, nothing can be believed. But uh, the Russians are having at it and uh, taking care of uh, <laughs> the moderate rebels and uh, the ISIS terrorists. And as of yesterday, the United States says, well, we're sending our troops onto the ground in Syria, which, of course, is illegal. Russia is there because they've been invited by the president, the duly elected president of Syria. They're there legally and the United States isn't. So uh, something's got to give here. They, they're putting their troops in, in an area where the Russians are uh, bombing. And, of course, uh, the, the United States is trying to provoke something with the Chinese in the South China Sea as well, if you followed my tweets or the news. You know that the Chinese have reclaimed some barrier reefs and turn them into islands with landing strips. And the United States has said, no, you, you can't do this. This is illegal, and we will not recognize your territorial claim. And in fact, we're going to send our destroyer right by your so-called islands within your 12-mile territorial limit, and we'll just see what you do about that. And they did that a couple of days ago, and the Chinese uh, restrained themselves so what's next? Well, the United States says we're going to keep doing it. 
until they get the desired provocation. In other words, they need a war, and they need it quick because their financial system is like a ice cream cone in August. It's, it's starting to melt. Deutsche Bank just announced a huge billion-dollar loss. Other banks are coming up with the, the same situation. All the easy money that has been pumped into the system since the near crash of 2008 the, the system is just awash in money, and it hasn't really produced anything but more and more and more debt, which can never be repaid. And everyone says, well, there'll be a day of reckoning sometime, somewhere down the road, and we're about there. So all of these things are converging to a point of a big, big kaboom. <laughs> and... Of course, I've been pointing forward to that for many years as a fulfillment of prophecy. And uh, we're, getting, we're getting close to the day. Well, that's my opening commentary, I guess. I, I um, have a few questions here, which is the format of the program. I entertain questions from listeners like you. And here's the first one. How much time will we have to leave the organization compared to the Christian time frame in, in Jerusalem when the disgusting thing uh, in the man of lawless, lawlessness enters the holy place? And is the man of lawlessness one person like Judas or a group of men? Okay, well, I assume you're referring to the first century when the disgusting thing came in 66 CE in the form of uh, the Roman armies, which went in and under, began to undermine the wall of the temple and then inexplicably withdrew. And that gave Christians time to pack up and uh, take off. Actually, Jesus told them not to pack up, let the man on the rooftop not come down, and so on. But actually, as it turned out, it was uh, th over three years before the Roman armies came back, and then uh, first they surrounded Jerusalem with pointed stakes, as Jesus said, and which prevented anyone from fleeing at that point. And then they besieged the city and uh, absolutely destroyed it. As for the Christian time frame, I, in our era, I don't, I, I don't think there is one. Jesus said there would be wars, food shortages, and, and all of that, and then a great tribulation. But Jesus said, but when you see all, all of these things beginning, then know that I am near at the door. So it's not a long, long period of time, a century where all of these things unfold. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, obviously the financial system is in a very precarious situation. It will not withstand a war. It will, you know, I mean, any little disruption and the, the thing is ready to, to topple the stock markets around the world and particularly. Um, so these things will unfold very, very 
quickly, in, in a matter of months, I would imagine. And then it will become apparent that the Watchtower, in, in reference to the man of lawlessness, the Apostle Paul said, do not be quickly shaken from your reason as regards you know, these announcements that the presence has begun, the day of Jehovah is here. He said it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And I think that we've seen the, the mystery of this lawlessness and uh, a tendency toward apostasy. For example, the secret partnership that the Watchtower engaged in with the United Nations for 10 years, that was an act of apostasy. But I, I don't think it's the apostasy that Paul foretold to come. That will be an abject rejection of Christ when he comes as the king. Because the Watchtower teaches, oh, that's, a, that's old news. Christ came in 1914, and which is not true. But how will they react when it becomes apparent that Christ has come and the kingdom has been set up? Well, a faction within this man of lawlessness will absolutely deny it. Paul said he is an opposer. He's a Satan. He is in opposition to Christ, an antichrist. And that's what we'll see. And then it will become apparent. And if you're a person of faith and truth and integrity, then you will know it's time to leave. We've seen some other little indications of this. If you saw the disgusting uh, spectacle of Brother Jackson's testimony before the uh, Royal Commission in Australia. There was a video of it and uh, the transcript. Uh, he outright lied on a number of points. And the most reprehensible, I think, was he, <laughs> he had the gall to tell the Royal Commission that, you know, the Watchtower was in a dilemma because the Scriptures forbade them from, you know, exposing the pedophiles in their midst. But, but... If the government of Australia passed a law requiring that Christian ministers report crimes committed against children within their congregation, then their dilemma would be solved and they could happily uh, hand over these pedophiles to the proper authorities for the crimes they've committed against children of Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> yeah. Do you understand why, at some point in the future, Jehovah will have to express his anger? I mean, if you and I are outraged, imagine Jehovah's feelings. Because it's his name involved, it's his people that are being defrauded and crushed by men who are anointed. So... But as for the man of lawlessness being one person, no. That, that's not possible. For one reason, the man of lawlessness has been embedded within the Christian society, within the Watchtower society, from the beginning. Because this whole 1914 thing, that's the basis for uh, the authority of this man of lawlessness. And, and Paul said, you know, the Satan 
It's due to an operation of Satan with every powerful work and lying sign and deception to make Jehovah's people believe that the kingdom has already come, that the presence has begun. And that's what the Watchtower has been all about, at least as far as prophecy is concerned. You know, the presence supposedly began in 1874, and the Watchtower taught that way beyond 1914, up until, the, I think, 1940. A couple of different dates for that. I, I'm not, don't quote me on that, but it was, it was for a long time afterwards before then 1914 was reset as the time for the beginning of the invisible presence. So this man of lawlessness is obviously a composite grouping of men. You know, I, I suspect that uh, the Watchtower was infiltrated from the beginning by Masons who, just like the superfine apostles in the Corinthian congregation, Paul said that they had transformed themselves into ministers of righteousness but in actuality, he said they were deceitful workers, false apostles. They were pretenders. And the Corinthians couldn't see through it. The anointed Corinthians could not see through it. And it took the inspired apostle Paul to expose it. And that's what it will require in the future. And Paul said that the manifestation of Christ will reveal this man of lawlessness. Right now, he's... He's like Judas, and the apostles didn't realize that Judas was about to betray Christ. Even when Jesus handed him the morsel, the apostles thought, well, he's going off to buy more food supplies for them. So we're blind to, to Satan's activities. That's, that's just the nature of it, especially because Jehovah's people are meek and trusting, and, you know, the faithful slave says this, says that. We're Jehovah's spokesmen. We'd never tell you wrong. Okay. But at some point in the future, we'll have to uh, confront that head on. Here's a question about baptism. He said Jesus commanded his followers to go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet the two baptism questions do not mention anything about being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also, the person who literally uh, baptizes a, a candidate doesn't say the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why not? Are baptism candidates being baptized the correct way? And then he points out that in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, that there were some who had been baptized in, in the John's baptism, but not in the name of Jesus, and they were rebaptized. So he says, I hope you see the point I'm trying to make. Are Jehovah's Witnesses being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though the exact words are not being mentioned at their baptism? Good question. Uh, I think it is understandable that uh, there is some reservation and suspicion, frankly, on the part of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and interested persons, especially those contemplating baptism. And you should give it 
careful thought. Uh, that second baptismal question that the Watchtower came up with back, I don't know when that was, in the mid-80s, uh, do you recognize that your baptism brings you into association with God's Spirit-directed organization? Hmm. But when, when we think about being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, well, we know what the Father's name is, of course, Jehovah, and the Son, Jesus. But what is the name of the Holy Spirit? I mean, even a Trinitarian would have to scratch his head and say, well, I don't know. He doesn't give his name. Holy Spirit, that's his name. <laughs> But obviously, the Holy Spirit is not even a person, and hence is not named. That being the case, how can we baptize, be baptized in the name of something that doesn't have a name? And that should cause us to think about this a little differently. Because, I mean, do we really want to be like the Catholic Church, which has all of these rituals and I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is that following the command of Jesus? Now, part of Jesus' command, he says, go and baptize, teaching them. So, the teaching, disciple-making work is really what Jesus commanded. Baptism is just an outward sign that a person has dedicated themselves, has accepted the truth, has committed themselves to Jehovah and Jesus. So, are Jehovah's Witnesses baptized in that sense? Well, you, you well know that if you wanted to be baptized as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, you couldn't just walk in off the street and be baptized. I mean, that's not the case. I, I remember back, I think I mentioned this in a podcast years ago when I began my search for God back in the early 70s. This girl I knew, uh, I mentioned something about the Bible, and she said, well, you can't really understand the Bible until you get baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. You know, she was Pentecost. And so I said, okay, how do you do that? You know, <laughs> I'm game. <laughs> And um, she said, well, come and pick me up, and, I, and I'll take you to my church tonight. I thought, all right. And they baptized me that night. This, this guy that walked in that didn't know anybody or anything. And so, But you can never do that in the Watchtower. You would have to commit to at least a, a six-month program where you learn what is required of you. And by learning the basic truth, coming to an accurate knowledge, the accurate knowledge of Jehovah, his purpose, his son, and the working of God's spirit in your life and developing the fruits of the spirit, by coming to that basic knowledge and then committing yourself to following it and getting baptized, in that sense, you are being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because that encompasses the whole range of what the truth is all about. At least, that's my understanding of what Jesus meant, implied, by his command to go baptize.
Because the main thing, as I mentioned, is the teaching. Teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And by observing those things, we walk and live in the name of Jesus. Right? We walk in the commandments of Jehovah. And in that sense, we are baptized in their name. As for the account in the 19th chapter of Acts, and I think Apollos was one of those. You know, he was an eloquent person and spoke with correctness, but he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. And so he wasn't really uh, anointed because those who had been baptized in the baptism of John and who were not present on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out were not anointed. Now, the apostles and the 120 that were in the upper room, they were baptized in the baptism of John, and then they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and hence they were never baptized officially in the name of Jesus, yet they were anointed. But after Pentecost, then it became necessary for ones to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And, you know, there's an interesting parallel to this because in the beginning, the Bible students, you know, they came from all different religious backgrounds, uh, mostly entirely from Christendom, of course. And they were not rebaptized as Bible students. If they had been Catholic or Episcopalian or Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever, uh, they just carried on as Bible students. But it was after 1918, 1919, then those who became Bible students were required to be baptized as Bible students, even if they had been baptized previously in some other denomination. And I think that at that point, at 1919, that was sort of a, a second Pentecost after the Cedar Point Conventions. It, to me, it was obvious that Jehovah's Spirit was moving this group because it takes a lot to go out and preach to others. To, and they were zealous back then. I mean, you know, over the years, the Watchtower has been reducing the amount of hours for pioneers. Back then, <laughs> the Regular publishers were expected to preach 50, 60, 70 hours. The coal porters spent 120, 150 hours a month out preaching, pedaling their bicycles, driving the you know, megaphone truck around. I mean, they, they were fired with Jehovah's Spirit. And they, they accomplished Jehovah's will, obviously. Uh, as far as, you know that business of being baptized and recognizing that your baptism brings you into association with, that does not nullify our baptism. The Watchtower will have to answer for that, for inserting, really, the organization into the, these baptismal vows that they uh, concocted. But really, baptism is a private agreement with no one else involved but you and God and Christ. So if you have dedicated yourself to God to do his will, and that's what it's all about, 
the one doing the will of my Father in the heavens, as Jesus said, will receive salvation. You dedicate yourself to do God's will. It doesn't matter what words are uttered or what you said at your baptism. If you dedicated yourself to Jehovah in your heart and you allowed these brothers to dunk you, it's sealed. You're dedicated to God. And Jehovah expects you to follow through on your vow of dedication. And he will treat you correspondingly. And he will call the watchtower into judgment, as you know. That's the whole point of my being online with this watchman's post business. I'm going to clear my throat here and uh, take a sip and be back in just a second. Okay, the person has a follow-up question, a second question. He says, also, in what way during the time of the end will the nation stream when the mountain of the house of Jehovah is firmly established? That's according to Isaiah 2.2 and Micah 4. It says, if this hasn't occurred already, obviously, how will people stream during the time of the end? I thought that time was reserved for judgment and not for an opportunity for people to believe and be saved. Well, that is another good question. Uh, you know, if you read the account, the prophecy, I would suggest starting in the first chapter because Jehovah takes his people to, a, to task. He says, you know, a, a bull knows, knows its manger and its owner, but my people do not know me. And uh, so he, he determines to punish them, not merely out of vengeance, but to bring them back to him. And then that's what the second chapter is about, in the final part of the days. The final part of the days does not transpire over decades and centuries. The very term, final part of the days, suggests that it is a relatively short period of time. And after God mentions that, you know, the people will stream to this mountain, for law will go out of Zion, and he will render judgment among the nations. And, and then in verse 6, he says, For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob. They become full of things from the east. They practice magic, like the Philistians, and they abound with children of foreigners. Well, there are no Philistians, unless you consider Palestinians today, the descendants. <laughs> but obviously, Jehovah is referring to a situation within the Christian congregation that he will have to remedy during the final part of the days. So God's purpose is to enter into judgment, to destroy Christ's congregation, and then reconstitute it. That's what the repurchase is all about. In the book of Isaiah, if you go on in the latter part of, of the prophecy, Jehovah refers to himself numerous times as the repurchaser. So, with the watchtower out of the way, the 
kingdom comes to the fore. And that's what is symbolized by the mountain of the house of Jehovah. And persons who have already been dedicated to God and who have a knowledge of him, just as the Israelites had before they went into captivity, they will be brought back. They will be punished, chastened, receive correction, and then God will receive them. And that's what is to occur in the future during the final part of the days. Uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and read that second chapter because uh, what Jehovah expresses is exactly what is needed to set things straight. It's enter into the rock and hide yourself in the dust because of the terrifying presence of Jehovah and his majestic splendor. The haughty eyes of man will be brought low, and the arrogance of men will bow down. Jehovah alone will be exalted in that day, for it is the day belonging to Jehovah of armies. It is coming upon everyone who is lofty, who, excuse me, who is haughty and lofty, upon everyone, whether exalted or lowly upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and exalted, and upon all the oaks of Bashan. Well, those lofty cedars and oaks are the elders and the men of stature who refer to themselves as the big trees of righteousness. Uh, they will be brought low, and they will have to acknowledge their heir and Jehovah will humiliate them. Uh, doesn't, doesn't Jesus say that even the faithful slave will be punished? The slave who did not know his master's will and so did not do in line with it will be beaten with a few strokes. So everyone will be humbled, whether they're haughty and lofty or whether they're lowly. In the prophecy of Joel, it says the sheep will be the ones made to bear the guilt, the guilt of their leaders. So we need this day of Jehovah. We need his correction. And if we have faith, then there is the reward afterwards. Okay? <laughs> Here's another question. Uh, the book of Revelation speaks of the elements becoming increasingly hot how is it that they become hot, and what exactly are the elements? Well, um, it's not the book of Revelation. It's the letter of Peter, 2 Peter, the third chapter, that refers to the heavens and the earth um, being on fire and the elements being intensely hot will melt. But there's a new heavens and a new earth. God is not talking about the literal chemical elements that make up matter. That is not what this is in reference to. The heavens and the earth are the complete system, and the heavens can be the demonic heavens. The demons and the devil have ruled over this wicked system uh, since way back, and the earth is the world under their influence, as Jesus said to those 
who refused to accept him. You are from your father, the devil, and you wish to do the desires of your father. People love this system, and even though people long for justice, they still cling to the devil's way of doing things and wouldn't feel comfortable any other way. But in the day of Jehovah's anger, the heat of his anger, this system will, will get hot, you might say. It will be hot to the point of coming unraveled, and people will reveal themselves to be evil, and the whole system will be exposed as wicked, completely, thoroughly marinated in corruption and evil. The elementary things that move people will be shown to be petty and menial and venal. And that, that will come about because of Jehovah's inspection. As I read from Isaiah there, from Jehovah's terrifying presence. And uh, it will have a profound effect upon people and their uh, institutions, which they think are so permanent, like, uh, like elements of rock or granite. And uh, they won't hold up under the heat of Jehovah's anger. That's merely what that symbolism is portraying. Okay, moving on here. Is <laughs> a uh, question regarding the tribulation. And it says, uh, Jesus describes the cutting short of God's wrath during the time of the end on account of the holy ones, unless those days would be cut short, no flesh would be saved. And then they ask, is Jesus saying that if he doesn't cut short the tumultuous days, even the anointed would cave in and worship the beast? Or is it that humanity itself would be completely destroyed? And if that's the case, since all things are possible for God, even if everyone were destroyed, why wouldn't God just go ahead and resurrect everyone that he deemed worthy? Well, <laughs> God can do anything, that's true. Jesus said, is anything impossible for God? And uh, the answer is no, of course. God could just allow the whole system to go uh, up in a mushroom cloud. It's very, very doable. I mean, they have the firepower now that is incomprehensible. Just press a button, and in a few hours, this whole planet could just be a radioactive cinder, uninhabitable for generations. But is that God's will? And the answer is no. God created the earth to be inhabited. And uh, he, he foretold after Noah's flood that never again would he deal every living thing a blow. So uh, an unlimited nuclear war would certainly... Uh, not only wipe out mankind, but virtually all animal and plant life. They say maybe the cockroach would survive, but uh, that's speculation, isn't it? No, but it's Jehovah's will to allow the demons to go to the extent of bringing the world face-to-face -face with extinction to show that 
men are that stupid and wicked that they would do that. And we see these neocons today, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, pushing China, pushing Russia. Both of those nations are nuclear powers. They, they could react. They could respond and obliterate the United States. They could easily do that. I tweeted an article that uh, the United States fears that Russia may have submarines that are poised to cut under, uh, under ocean uh, communication fiber optic cables. They could send, you know, put out the whole internet and, and uh, international communications with one big snip. <laughs> and that's just one nuclear weapon as I've written about, that could create what they call an electromagnetic pulse. If it's fired high up in the stratosphere, it sends out a pulse of electricity which would fry all electronics over a widespread area. It would, it would send the United States back into the dark age, literally. That could happen easily, and it may happen. I'm not saying it will, but they have that power. So Jehovah is going to allow them to, to go to the limit. And then he is, after all, the God of salvation. He is going to intervene on account of the chosen ones. It's not that they're going to compromise. After all, they are going to be killed because of their faith. But there are those who will come out of the great tribulation a great number of people, a great crowd will survive the end of this system of things because that's Jehovah's will. He wants people to survive it just as Noah and his family survived the great flood. And uh, Jehovah opened the door of the ark and out they came, all of the animals, into a new world. And that's what Jehovah has promised, a new heaven and a new earth, a new world. And that's what is before us. Okay, one more question here. Um, I was wondering if you would be so kind as to answer a question I've had for some time. Jehovah's Witnesses are a relatively new religion, and I know Catholics believe in apostolic succession, and obviously that isn't true, Except I can't help but wonder why. Why did God allow so many centuries of darkness in the spiritual sense where nobody even knew the basic doctrines? Jehovah ensured that an accurate copy of his word stood the test of time. Wouldn't he want to be worshipped in truth as well? Well, that is a good question. Think now what God's purpose is. Is he so much interested in having worshipers uh, all during every century of time? Not necessarily. Because God knows in the future what he is going to do. And his purpose is to have nothing but worshipers with no non-worshippers anywhere in existence in heaven or on earth. That's what the new heaven and the new earth is about. So, 
Jehovah's purpose is toward that end. And from the time of Christ and Pentecost, Jehovah began choosing those who are going to be part of the new heavens, 144,000 ultimately. And many of those were chosen in the first century. But obviously there is a big period of time, centuries, when there was little or no choosing of anointed ones. And the reason for that is because God is reserving that anointing for the harvest, for the return of Christ. And that's when there's another outpouring of spirit similar to the first century so that there are anointed persons on the earth when Christ returns so that they may receive him and uh, bring along those who will make up the new earth. As it says in Revelation, the spirit and the bride say to everyone, come drink life's water free. So there is the bride of Christ on the earth that's taken from uh, not only the resurrected ones, but those who are living on the earth at the time Christ returns. So it doesn't really matter that there were not worshipers on the earth during the period of, which is accurately described as the Dark Ages, because as we know, all of those persons who lived and died will be resurrected back onto the earth. Jesus said there'll be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, the wicked, and they'll receive a resurrection of judgment. So Jehovah did them no wrong by not ensuring that there was an understandable way of, of knowing the truth and, and of worshiping him. It's like what Christ started in the first century picks up immediately before Jesus returns. As Paul said, uh, when he said, we the living who survived to the presence of Christ, he placed himself among those living on earth when Christ returns. But he died long before. <laughs> but it is as if he is living. And those who are on the earth at this time are connected with those in the first century by means of the apostles' writings. So, I hope that answers your question. Well, thank you for listening, and uh, hopefully we'll do this again soon in the month of November. Please, if you have questions, send me an email, or if you're brave enough, uh, use the speak pipe and uh, your computer. You can use your microphone and leave a voice message. So thank you again, and until then, May Jehovah bless your search for the truth.